You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Eric Metaxas. Please note that John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum. Eric Metaxas, thank you very much for joining us again. Uh, you're an author, a speaker, and a radio host. You're well known in your country for your Christian faith and for the way that you defend it and promote it and argue the case. You've written multiple books that have made the New York bestseller list, New York Times bestseller list. Uh, Bonhoeffer, I think, has been the biggest seller of all, and it was quite well known in Australia because we had a prime minister who was a devotee of it. Yeah. Uh, we had uh, Amazing Grace, which I think is the best summary, the best overview of Wilberforce's life that I've ever read. I often give it away, as a matter of fact. So if you want to understand our culture, read this book because he was so influential in the superpower of the day and its places like Australia, which was set up by Britain. Yeah. Uh, you host your own radio show and also Socrates in the City, where you explore great ideas and their meaning for the modern world. So, uh, and you've just written another book, which I can't wait to get hold of, a second uh, book on seven uh, interesting lives, one of whom we might talk a bit about today, that being Martin Luther King. But uh, tremendous to have you with us. Can I just ask, what's it like in New York City at the moment? Because we watch from Australia, we get the news, yeah. it looks pretty bad. Well, it's an interesting thing, John. First of all, thank you so much for, for having me. Uh, and as I think I said to you the first time you had me on your program, I, I'm, uh, I've only visited Australia once, but I was very impressed. Uh, I thought that of all the countries I've ever visited in my life, other than the, the United States, you all seem to get the freedom thing. There's, a, there, there's something that I, that I saw and felt in Australia, which gave me uh, a lot of encouragement. Um, speaking of which, living in New York, you don't see so much of it. If you live in Texas or in the heartland of the United States, you see people who have a sense of what it is to be free, self-government. They take pride in those things. Uh, but in places like New York, not so much. Um, when people ask what it's like here, in a way you could say it's like anywhere else. It all depends on where you go. Uh, you know, if you live uh, in, in an apartment, um, you stay in your apartment. But uh, if you wander the streets, you know, you can see different things. Right now, this COVID uh, quarantine period, for me personally, uh, has been a kind of enforced Sabbath. I've been forced to be quiet and not to travel. And it's been a good thing for me. I've been working on a new book. Um, we have our daughter home with us. So it's been a really blessed time. And I have seen very little of the horrors that I know are out there. But, uh, you know, that brings us into the bigger conversation. There was, um, there was a little bit of fear mongering going on that hospitals would be overrun. Uh, and so dramatic measures were taken uh, to prevent that. Dramatic measures were taken all around. And I think in retrospect, most people um, would say that the, matter, that, that the measures taken were too dramatic, that we too quickly, too easily gave up some of our freedoms um, because we thought it was the right thing, because we were told it was the right thing. We have very little experience in the United States uh, of really having that kind of direct engagement with our government. 
we're free to do what, what we do. It's very rare that the governor or the mayor or anyone has any direct effect on our lives. But suddenly, for the first time in, in my life, um, you realize, hmm, the person that we elected for governor, uh, in our case, Andrew Cuomo, the person that we elected, Mayor uh, de Blasio, they really, uh, they've come up short in some ways. They have a view of things that uh, at a time like this, you see the downside of their, of their view. Uh, Mayor Cuomo, I'm sorry, uh, the, the governor, Andrew Cuomo, uh, did something that under normal circumstances, he would have resigned in disgrace over it. But in an overreaction uh, to, to the, the, the news of what was happening with COVID uh, and this fear that hospitals would be overrun, uh, he, he signed an order demanding that state-run nursing homes accept COVID patients because he thought the hospitals would be overrun. The hospitals didn't even begin uh, to, to be overrun. In other words, we, we never even got near to that point. But by sending COVID patients to nursing homes, which most of us now know uh, are populated by people who are the most at risk by far. When old people get this disease, it is highly likely that they can die, that they will die. And that's what happened. And so some thousands of people died. Um, you know, these are mothers and fathers um, uh, died because of government policy, because of the poor leadership of our governor. And I thought to myself, this is a new thing in my lifetime. Generally speaking, it just isn't the kind, it, we, we just don't have that dramatic clarity on how policies or uh, government vision uh, affects people. But it happened in our time. It's one thing to talk about taxes. It's what there's, we, we have a number of ways where we see these things, but it's never been so clear and so direct. And I also think because Americans, as I say, are so used to freedom, we, uh, we're very, um, it's a, it's a good thing and a bad thing. We're very amenable to, to do what we're told. You know, we, we, we want to be helpful. Uh, we don't want to cause trouble. And when somebody says, unless you do this, people will die, everybody, um, you know, leaps uh, to, to comply. But I, I think in retrospect, it's been a, a kind of a dramatic lesson for us about what we're willing to give up for freedom. And I think that uh, I wrote a book called If You Can Keep It, where uh, in, in part in that book, I discussed this idea of what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to govern ourselves? And I think we've been so free and so blessed that we've never really dealt with the price. People have paid the price. People have died in wars. People, uh, uh, people have made great sacrifices. Most people in my generation and younger, we've never really had to make sacrifices. And we've never really thought about what is this... Um, What's the equation when when you give up something uh, when you when you give up some of your freedom for safety uh, at some point uh, do you give up too much freedom and anyway that that's the long version actually no kidding uh, there's supposed to be uh, demonstrations in Times Square and they're supposed to march up Madison Avenue looting the stores so the stores on Madison Avenue. Uh, are being um, boarded up, some of them. And I think to myself, 
This is because we have a mayor who is unwilling to use the police to safeguard people's property. It's a mind-blowing failure of leadership that if you have a very expensive store or an apartment building or whatever it is on Madison Avenue, you don't have any guarantee that this mayor is really committed to keeping you safe. Now, if it were Mayor uh, Bloomberg or Mayor Giuliani, you have no doubt that they would do what was necessary. They understand their job. This mayor uh, is very politically correct in the worst sense, and uh, I think has given orders to the cops that make the cops get the idea. Well, we're not gonna we're not gonna risk our lives, you know, to save uh, a department store. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna stand there. We're gonna watch it happen. I have to tell you, sitting here uh, as a father and a husband, it's 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 outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous, and it's the first time in my life where I have seen that the, the lack of leadership in folks like this mayor um, hit home in this way. So COVID and uh, these uh, the, these riots that are that are using the excuse of the death of uh, of, of George Floyd, uh, but it's not. Uh, that's not what why these writers are rioting, and most of them, unfortunately, uh, are not. They're not even from the area. It's kind of a that's a long story. So you're painting a different picture of uh, of New York in particular, and America in general, and COVID to the one that we're getting from the media in Australia. Now, remember, the media in Australia is it's very liberal in your language, uh, left of centre in ours. And they particularly dislike the current uh, uh, occupant of the White House. Of course, so yeah. We're, we're getting this picture of a country tearing itself apart. Firstly, on New York, though, you, you, you've just described the, the situation as it is now in terms of um, uh, governance. Uh, New York is a place that was massively cleaned up and made infinitely safer by good policing. Is that being allowed to slip away? Oh, oh, it has slipped away dramatically. Uh, it hasn't slipped away completely. We haven't gone back to what it was when I was a kid. When I was a kid, New York was a very dangerous place. Yeah, I grew up here. It's why we left here when I was uh, eight and a half years old, because it was a horrible place. It was crime-ridden. Uh, and because the Democratic uh, leadership uh, was unwilling to confront these things. Um, uh, Giuliani, by the grace of God, was able very dramatically to change things. I mean, every now and again, I think about how dramatic, how dramatically things changed. And I thought, what an extraordinary thing that the leadership of one man can dramatically change a city. When I say dramatically, I mean, I can hardly say how dramatically. New York became a safe, clean city. It had been a filthy, dangerous city. So amazing things can happen with, you know, the right kind of leadership. Uh, and so to see things be maintained under Bloomberg uh, was good. De Blasio has been nothing less than disastrous. Dis disastrous. We have to be clear. Uh, he's not liked by anyone. The liberals don't like him. I mean, he is He's he's just about as bad a mayor as you could have. And we have seen it daily. In other words, the change, you see street people more and more and more. Th that had been dealt with under Giuliani and Bloomberg. The idea 
that street people ought to be free to effectively abuse themselves by living on the street uh, in dangerous conditions. And, you know, it, it is the role of the government to take them off the street, which should belong to everyone, and to put them in places where someone will care for them. There's no, uh, you know, <laughs> there's no proviso uh, that says, oh, well, you know, anyone can just sleep on the sidewalk and whatever. It, it leads to disease. It leads to crime. It leads to every kind of uh, terrible thing, property values plummeting. And so a good leader understands those things. Th this mayor uh, is particularly bad. I mean, I think he's willfully myopic on this issue. And I have seen the city in the however many years he's been mayor, about five, very dramatically uh, move in a, in a bad direction. You know, you just walk down the street and you see things that you haven't seen in 20 years. So um, th there's no question that policy matters. Political philosophy matters. Uh, in a very, very prosperous country, you see it very little. But in this country, more recently, you have seen it illustrated in our daily lives, no question about it. And as far as the way the, the media treat this president, never in my life have I seen anything like this. I have never seen anything like this. What the, the, the accusation that he has uh, instigated uh, trouble and division is rank nonsense. The problem with Trump is that when people challenge him or when people insult him uh, or when people criticize him, he fights back. Other presidents, other leaders typically have allowed this stuff to go on. The problem at some point is you're playing patty cake with evil. In other words, when China, let's just go to China. When China is, uh, is doing nefarious things, doing things that communist dictatorships do, if you don't confront them on stealing intellectual property, if you don't confront them on all kinds of uh, malfeasance, you are derelict as a leader. The presidents of the United States before Trump have all been derelict or naive in dealing with China. And they have allowed China to more and more effectively oppress its own citizens. Uh, and so the idea that Trump for years has been talking about this and suddenly says, uh, hey, what about this? Excuse me. What about that? What about these trade policies? This doesn't seem right. When 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 somebody has the guts to fight, you know, there's going to be some trouble in a sense. But if people had been fighting all along the way, we never would be here. And I think that's the case of what I, I refer to China, but it's the case with Trump and the, the liberal establishment, what we now call the deep state as, as well, they've gotten away with murder in some cases, literally, but, but they have been allowed to, um, to prosper and real leadership would have, uh, would have taken them on. Uh, so the idea that Trump is taking them on, they, they've never been taken on. They've been allowed a free ride to, to do as they like. Uh, and to do many things that are fundamentally un-American and fundamentally unconstitutional. And so he's taken them on. So the, so he's willing to go to war with the press, which uh, I, I, I've, it breaks my heart, John, to see what happened uh, to, to journalists and to the press in the United States of America. It's, you know, they effectively don't, they, they almost don't exist anymore, really. Um, but also uh, what's called the deep state, the big bureaucracy that exists 
in American government, which is f fundamentally antithetical to who we are supposed to be. We're supposed to be small government, self-governing. Um, the idea that, that he has dared to, to confront them has enraged them. And uh, in their rage, they've taunted him more and he, you know, he won't uh, take it lying down. And so uh, we're living in strange times, but the, it's, it strikes me as a sign of great health that we have a leader finally willing to call a spade a spade and say, this is wrong. Uh, help me understand what I'm missing because this seems to me wrong. Most Americans agree with him. And incidentally, who elected Donald Trump? Here's the simple answer. America. Every four years, we have a presidential election. We elected him. So the disregard uh, that some in the elite classes have for him, uh, the, the, um, the contempt that some of them have for him is a contempt for the American voter. I don't know how else to see it. Every four years, we have an election. We're bound uh, to respect who occupies the office when Obama uh, occupied it. Most people, myself included, who disagreed with his policies, sometimes strongly, nonetheless respected the office of president and were compelled to respect him as the holder of that office. That uh, has gone away with Trump. So it's uh, we're living in, in very strange times indeed, I have to say, no question. Uh, that's a very interesting reflection you just made. You see it in other countries. We see it here among certain elites in Australia. Uh, it's profoundly anti-democrat, uh, anti-democracy. You don't support a leader, so you therefore uh, denies legitimacy. You're actually denying the people's choice. You're okay. insulting the people who supported him. And that that is a big shift in America. But to pick up on uh, one comment you made, you referred to New York not being typical America. The reality is, I think, that there are many Americas and that the, the view we get of America in Australia is often Hollywood or West Coast or East Coast. Yeah. Uh, the former ambassador, Kim Beasley, who was a, uh, a political leader in Australia, a man I have enormous regard for, uh, served there for a very long time in Washington. And he made this point to him. He said, uh, you know, we miss the essential cultural family and church strength of middle America that's not commonly portrayed. Are you saying that's still strong and vibrant in your view? Oh, there's no question. It's been strong since Tocqueville uh, in 1826. It's been strong since 1776 and since 1750 uh, when George Whitfield was preaching up and down the 13 colonies. It is the backbone of our liberty. We would have no liberty and no self-government if not for those good people who are virtuous, who govern themselves, uh, and by governing themselves enable self-government in the larger sense, uh, that is what has enabled America to be the, the freest and most prosperous country in the world. And it's not because American people are better. American people are precisely like other people around the world. It is the, the culture of self-government that needs to be taught and that was taught for generations, but that since I was a kid, uh, roughly speaking, has ceased to be taught. So people don't understand how it works, why it's good, why it's fragile, and we have to make sacrifices to keep it. Uh, and we don't really talk so much um, about why it's worth fighting for. And so most people tend to take it for granted, uh, tend not to see that it is a glorious privilege to live 
in a truly free country to govern ourselves. It's a glorious privilege. None of us deserves it. And the least we can do is preserve it for future generations and try to help give it to the rest of the world so that other people around the world can live this way uh, and not live under, uh, you know, tyrannous bureaucracies or tyrannous leaders, dictators. Uh, it's, it's just something that, uh, without any question, I didn't discover until later in life. And so I'm, I'm making up for lost time by writing about it and talking about it, because I think that everyone in the world deserves the opportunity uh, to really be free, uh, to be self-governing, and to have economic freedom and economic opportunity. All of those things are, are wonderful, but they don't exist in the state of nature. Uh, if we leave things, you know, uh, just to go... Uh, as they're going to go, eventually you devolve, whether to anarchy or to tyranny, you know, to something less than what we currently still have. I understand what you're saying. It's always a battle. Uh, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, as you said. Um, who's going to win, though, in America? Because it does seem that what you call the deep state, what we might call uh, the uh, the elites with the megaphones, uh, they're, they're mounting a pretty powerful case, a pretty powerful pushback against the traditional bases of American freedom. You get the impression that uh, that America is changing, and this was this was Kim Beasley, the former ambassador's point. Uh, you, you know, he was saying that don't miss the great bulwark of Middle America; it's still much stronger than you think. But you yourself have just said they're not being taught anymore. Their kids are not being taught. Uh, the, well, the basis well, of freedom. Mostly that's true. Mostly that is true. Um, but what I see, I speak all over America, and I meet oftentimes uh, young people who have gone to strong Christian schools, private schools. Uh, more often than that, I meet people who have been homeschooled. They are going to take over the world. They are so well educated and so well versed in everything we're discussing that they give me tremendous hope for the future of America. We are in a fierce battle, but I think the battle in which we find ourselves is a sign of health and strength. I think that the so-called deep state, these, these bureaucrats who are really globalists and who are fundamentally uh, anti-American, anti-freedom, anti-liberty in the American model, uh, these people realize that they're in the fight of their lives, they don't wanna lose, and so they're fighting with all their might and main. They've never had to do that before. They've gotten away, as I said earlier, with murder, figuratively and literally, uh, under previous administrations. This president is forcing them to fight. I think the strength of um, those Americans who understand America and who love America is greater than the strength of our enemies, and we are willing to fight. Uh, I also think if I can be blunt, uh, that God is on the side of those who want to fight for freedom. God is not on the side of tyranny, whether it's bureaucratic tyranny or global uh, cultural elite tyranny or the tyranny of Kim King Jong Un. Um, so I really do believe that these things uh, are, they may be a battle, but I have, I have great hope. There are days when I have less hope, but most days, I, I have absolutely great hope. I see the decline uh, of what have been the cultural elites that have held power. I see their decline. Uh, the New York Times, for example, has devolved into uh, 
absolutely opinion journalism. They used to be the paper of record, uh, and, and they and many others who have a great name, a great brand, they're living off their past. When we say the New York Times, it means something. Well, it isn't anymore what it means. The same thing could be said for all the elite institutions, Yale and Harvard. They have gone so dramatically downhill and have have failed so spectacularly in the last decades that they're they're simply clinging to their name and to their brand. But they are they are effectively dead. Uh, you know, whatever they were once, they no longer are. And I think that these things more and more and more are becoming clear to people. I think the COVID pandemic has gotten tons of people to rethink the basics. Why don't I homeschool my kids? It hasn't been so bad. And by the way, they've been behaving better when they're home. What kind of influences have they been in at under at school? Um, you're seeing a lot of that. I think there's going to be a lot of homeschooling that's going to go on. And this is, you know, below the college level. But I also think a lot of people are wondering, what am I paying for? I'm sending my kid uh, to this college. Uh, maybe I maybe I want to rethink that. And I, I I'm just I'm convinced, John, that uh, th this um, this country, America, is was created by God to be a beacon of liberty. Lincoln, our greatest president, said that we are God's almost chosen people. What he meant by that was that we've been given a gift that we don't deserve, and that gift is to hold high the torch of liberty for the rest of the world, not for ourselves, for the rest of the world, to be a beacon of liberty so that those in the Soviet gulag would know that there are people out there fighting against them, that there's a president named Reagan uh, who speaks against uh, the wall uh, in, in dividing uh, Germany. There are, are people all around the world looking to America. And, uh, you know, John Winthrop, uh, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, quoting the New Testament, talked about uh, about the Massachusetts Bay Colony being a shining city on a hill, um, which is, of course, a profoundly Christian idea. It was picked up uh, by JFK and then by Reagan. It is an idea that people are looking to us for something. So we bear responsibility that goes far beyond our shores. The whole world wants us to continue to be free, to cherish freedom, to spread freedom, uh, to spread opportunity, uh, to spread religious liberty. We forget how little religious liberty there is around the world, how many people would face death for converting uh, to a religion other than Islam, for example. And so I really, I have to say I'm hopeful and I don't think that, uh, God is inclined to let America uh, get what we deserve. I think he's been gracious gracious to us and has continued to be gracious to us. And that these um, uh, these battles, these the, the tumult uh, in which we're uh, finding ourselves at present is a sign of health in the way that a fever is can be a sign of health. There's a battle going on. So maybe the... Uh scab of complacency is being ripped off by the events that are unfolding around us and what we see of, uh, of the disastrous consequences. I, I do think the authoritarian uh, 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 fangs that China has revealed in recent times must have pushed a lot of people to say, gee, uh, here's a contrast. We don't actually want to lose our freedoms. What we have is valuable. And I was uh, intrigued to talk to a lady who lives not far from you recently um, <clears throat> in New York, and she was a Trump hater, so was her husband, but she was quite extraordinary. I mean, it was something to behold. 
And then she looked at me intently and said, but what's your perspective as Australia? Do you see, as an Australian, do you see how, what an appalling leader and so forth he is? Is he done, he's done nothing good at all. And I said, well, actually, from an Australian perspective, he's called out the Chinese. And she immediately backed off and she said, yes, I have to concede, he has done that. And, and I would have thought that was a- what, what that is? What that is is huge. If he did nothing else, if he, did, if he never did anything else, that is absolutely huge. Imagine how derelict our previous presidents have been, how, how impossibly, inexcusably naive President Clinton was in allowing uh, uh, you know, most favored nation status to a country that so oppresses its own people, that has enforced genuinely racist policies. If you're a Uyghur Muslim in, in China, God help you. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you have a different religion, if you have a religion that you take seriously, God help you. Most people in America were ignorant of this, but for the presidents of the United States to be ignorant of this and then to help it, then to use their ability to make policy, to execute policy, to contribute to the oppression of literally hundreds of millions of people in China is absolutely scandalous. So the fact that this president, for everything that people say about him, understood the situation, has been dealing with the situation, I, I just, I, I, I cannot imagine what could be much more important than that. It's 1.3 billion people over there. It is a communist dictatorship. Uh, former Mayor Bloomberg of New York um, insanely said on, uh, on firing line on our PBS station here with Margaret Hoover that no, no, the, uh, it's, it's not, you know, President C, C is, not a, uh, uh, is not a dictator. Uh, he, he, I mean, you, you have to be a wildly out of touch global elitist not to see that human beings are suffering uh, under communism around the world, particularly in China, and, you, and, and not to be able to cheer someone who is trying to draw attention to it. I'm really so thrilled that Trump is, is, is doing this. And it's drawing some lines, isn't it? In other words, you see uh, that there are people, you know, the, the National uh, Basketball Association, the NBA, Nike, uh, Apple, and others, they have been doing business with the devil. They have basically said, you know, if we can make some money, so what if there's slave labor going on or something like slave labor? We're going to look the other way. How is that any different than people who opposed Wilberforce, than people who said, look, we're making a pretty penny here. There has always been slavery. There's not much we can do about it. Let's at least make some money off of it for ourselves. There's nothing more despicable than that. And we have American companies that they don't deserve to be allowed to function uh, in America if they don't have a modicum of appreciation for what American values are and, and the values of, of freedom are. We're, we're seeing this for the first time because this president uh, has done some things to allow us to see it. So we're, we're in, in, in a very good place uh, in some ways. I would say in that way, a very good place. We're seeing quite a bit of naivety from some business people in Australia, frankly, at the moment, about the Chinese. And uh, 
what they ought to keep in mind, of course, is that the objective of the Chinese has been to disrupt all fair trading arrangements around the world, to set up monopolies in supply chains, uh, and uh, to ultimately, if you like, smash capitalism. So, thugs? <laughs> Are they anything thugs? It's like dealing with the mafia. Hey, you know what? If we treat them nicely, maybe they'll be a slightly nicer mafia. Maybe they'll kill and torture and maim a few less people. We can work with them. I mean, if yeah, those are yeah. your moral values, you're you're the worst kind of uh, of hypocrite. And then, and I have to say, John, I have been most disappointed over the years in corporate leadership. Corporate leaders uh, have lacked vision and yep, have been yep. the most craven, cowardly, shameful uh, leaders. I, I have to say that uh, that's something that's you. You wonder what the founders. Uh, you know, Madison and Jefferson and Franklin and so on would have thought of some of these very, very powerful corporations, which, of course, didn't exist 250 years ago. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I think it was a fellow New Yorker of yours, uh, Henry Kissinger, who, who commented that a little trade lost can be won back. Freedom lost is never recovered. And it was a pretty, oh. uh, pretty insightful remark. Can I come to something that I thought was really interesting that you touched on? Um, you, you touched on, uh, it's the idea of that knowledge is power, that some of the people who, the kids that are being privately educated now, taken out of the mainstream, are so much better informed. It reflects this fact that the mainstream educational institutions in much of the West are so woke, to use that modern term. Oh, it's, it's been the long march through the institutions. Yeah. They are all, they're crippled with cultural Marxism. There's no question about it. It's horrifying to say and to see, but there is no question. But what you're saying was a very interesting thing, that the kids who are being properly equipped yeah. will have massive disproportionate influence because they'll know what they're talking about in the future. They'll be able to critique the problems, point to the answers. And of course, That's you've written a lot as a historian. That's really what the whole Wilberforce set was about, wasn't it? I mean, England was a very decrepit and immoral and bankrupt sort of a place. It was a mess when Wilberforce and his group, yeah. highly educated, deeply yeah. researched, always persuasive, turned a country around, turned a culture around. Well, listen, first of all, we have to say that, you know, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, right? Uh, <laughs> if you have a world where people are ignorant uh, on any number of levels, those who are less ignorant or who are not ignorant will rise to the top. And we're talking about reality here. In other words, we're, we're talking about educating people uh, along the lines that are consonant with reality. This is not just my point of view versus someone else's point of view. We're saying that these are the systems, you know, a healthy uh, capitalism, a virtuous capitalism, uh, a free market, freedom of religion, a robust freedom of religion, uh, and robust freedom and self-government. Th this blesses people. This helps everyone to prosper. If you care about the poor and you're for socialism, you're a fool. You are going to harm the poor. If you want to claim that you care about the poor, you can do so. But in reality, you're harming them. So when you educate young people along these lines, it, it, it's no different than math. You're simply explaining, this is the way things work historically. This is what happens when you do this. This is what happens when you do this. It's fairly simple. We can argue around the edges, but the basics are there. 
Uh, and those people who have these ideas, you know, given a level playing field, there's no question that they're going to win. So as I say, I, I, I think that the election of Trump uh, itself shows great health in America, that, that people finally got fed up and, and that uh, even the Republican establishment, I think many people had come to see that they really and truly were hardly any different from their liberal Democrat colleagues, that they weren't willing to fight the fights uh, that they had been elected to fight and that they were allowing things uh, to go in a certain direction and that we needed a disruptor, we needed somebody from outside the system. Um, so as I say, I am, I am hopeful and I think there are many, many young people in America and many, many very, very faithful Christians uh, who, you know, they may not be uh, invited to be talking on NBC or CBS or ABC or PBS, but they're out there. Uh, and uh, I meet them and I'm impressed by them. And I, I know that they're, they're the future, you know, not just of America, but of, of, of a free world. Well, uh, I've quoted him before, so for those who are listening, forgive me if uh, you've heard me say it before, but I was intrigued that Churchill, in a little known uh, book, that he, it was book, uh, that he wrote in 1933, commented that any culture that wants to preserve its freedom must pass on to its children the story of its, their faith and their heroes, uh, and that if you don't, then you leave young people easily persuaded, as Marx put it. Now, You've been in the business of writing books, particularly about heroes, uh, and I give them away freely, like confetti, whenever I can afford to, to buy particularly uh, your story on Wilberforce. So I, I grab a few and, and I give them away, I, particularly to young people. I say, you want to understand your culture? Remember, I'm Australian, slightly different to America. Uh, read this uh, and you'll come away better equipped. Now, you've written another book on heroes, haven't you? I, you? I've got the earlier one. I haven't seen the new one. Have you got one you can hold up so we can see it? You have some yeah, books I'm, in the background there. I'm sure I do someplace. Well, basically, John, I never, you know, and this is where I, I make no bones about the role of God in my life. I can never pretend to have had the wisdom to say, I, I'd like to write biographies. I'd like to tell the stories of heroes because it's uh, inspiring and because we need inspiration. Nothing was uh, farther from my mind, but God led me in a circuitous way to write this book about Wilberforce. And after I wrote the book about Wilberforce, I thought maybe I can write another biography. And I thought, who rises to the level of Wilberforce? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. After I'd written those two books, you know, everybody said, who are you going to write about next? And I thought, there are so many stories and so many lives that need to be told and that need to be known and that are not known. And so I thought, let me write a book called Seven Men, telling the stories of seven men, obviously much easier to read because, you, you know, you don't have to read the whole book. There's just a chapter, but it gives you the basics of it. And then I wrote Seven Women. And then finally, recently, I wrote Seven More Men uh, because the, the list is virtually endless. And when you read these stories, you realize what you're not getting in school. You realize what you are never getting from Hollywood, from TV, from the Internet. These are real heroes. These are the kind of people who are not the, you know, heroes du jour, like Bruce Jenner or who, whoever we want to kind of throw up as, wow, this is the new, you know, everybody should try to be like that. No, th these are heroes who have stood the test of time, who have been self-sacrificial uh, to a huge extent, and that have done what God created them to do. And we're all beneficiaries of what these people have done. That's true greatness. 
And I think that we used to tell those stories. I think most cultures uh, tell those stories. They celebrate the great figures in their culture. Something happened uh, in the last, let's say, 50 or so years since we became, you know, woke since 1968. We sort of, uh, we have this anti-Western narrative, anti-American narrative, anti-heroic narrative. You know, we talk about anti-heroes. We celebrate Bonnie and Clyde, but we don't celebrate George Washington. That's a, uh, a tragic mistake. And so in writing these books, I'm really trying uh, to help educate a new generation uh, about what real greatness is. And of course, these books aren't only written for young people. I mean, they're written for any adult who can read. But you cannot fail to be inspired by these books because the stories are real. When you read it and when you read when you come across a life like like any of these people, you just say, I I want to be like that. I, I, I want my life to count. Uh, I, I don't want to, to just be a nobody doing nothing. I want even in my small sphere to do the right thing. And so I, I do think it's important. And, you know, I'm one person, but I I'm doing what I can. And that, so the new book is called Seven More Men. Uh, and it has um, uh, Martin Luther, about whom I yep. wrote a, a big biography. He's the first character. The second character is George Whitfield, one of the most fascinating figures I've ever encountered in my life, an evangelist uh, who I would say is equal to George Washington in the role he played in bringing about what we call the United States of America. Absolutely stunning, stunning story. So he's the second one. And then, and then there are many others. George Washington Carver. I didn't really know his story. He was a, a black man uh, born during slavery times who rose through tremendous humiliations and difficulties to become one of the greatest scientists in the world and a very humble Christian man. Uh, he's worthy of knowing. Uh, he, he's worthy of celebrating. And uh, uh, the the second to last person in the book is Alexander Solzhenitsyn, another figure who, you know, many younger than we are might not know who he was. And I think he was one of the greatest characters of the 20th century. If you want to know about freedom and if you want to know about totalitarian oppression and communism, you know, read about Solzhenitsyn. So uh, I think that, you know, they are, these are fascinating figures. And so I hope people will, will pick up a copy. Well, I do too. Uh, and I will as soon as I can in Australia. But tell me, um, am I right? Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, as opposed to Martin Luther, uh, is one of them. Is that right? No, 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 no. Martin Luther King is not uh, is not in my book, although I will tell you uh, it's good that you bring him up because right now what is happening, yeah. the George Floyd situation, I think to myself, there is no one who would be more horrified, no one who would be That's more horrified bring it up. than Martin Luther King Jr. He was a Christian minister who went out of his way to do the Christian thing. He said we have to. Uh, we have to behave with dignity. We have to be above reproach. Rosa Parks was, was the same and Jackie Robinson was the same, two great civil rights heroes and leaders who also were profound Christians. They had a tremendous dignity and a nobility that spoke volumes. What is happening now is a joke. People are using the excuse uh, of what happened with George Floyd simply to loot, to cause anarchy, to burn down the system, to do what they can. They don't care about George Lloyd uh, any more than a real racist would. They are just using him, and he himself was a Christian. 
it's it's a grotesque thing when I think of how many African Americans I know who are profound Christians who believe in forgiveness, not revenge, not vandalism and looting. Uh, this is criminality. It's nothing. It's nothing less than criminality. And the idea that these people ought to be given a pass to do this, most of them, honestly, if you're protesting in a, in a civil way. Uh, you have every right in America to do that. But to commit crimes, as so many of these people are doing, I also believe there's evidence that many of these people are not even from the local areas, that this is, it's all ginned up, and that through social media, they're kind of gathering in these cities, and it's kind of a planned, you know, anarchist rebellion using the excuse of the horror that was perpetrated on George Floyd. And we have to understand that, that these are, you know, are the equivalent of carpetbaggers. These are not... Uh, people from the neighborhood that most of them uh, are, are 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 you know they're 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 troublemakers they they despise America and any excuse they can find uh, to bring about uh, you know cultural Marxism and or anarchy they will use and that's exactly what's going on and I think that you know the news will eventually catch up with that much more slowly than it should. Yeah, I, I I'm stunned at the way in which uh, I. I know a little bit Martin Luther King, an admirable man in many ways, although we now know that he was a flawed man as well. Uh, but uh, he, he wrote in 1958, true pacifism or nonviolent resistance is a courageous confrontation of evil by the power of love. It seems to me that many who claim to follow in his footsteps as civil rights activists display anything but love. It's more the sort of hatred, even the contempt that's the that Arthur Brooks that, talks that's about. That's exactly the point. It's the, it's, it's the antithesis of Dr. King's vision, the absolute antithesis. They celebrate hate. They revel in hate. There's no question. They revel in hate. They celebrate revenge. Christians do not celebrate revenge. We may be tempted toward revenge, but we condemn it. Uh, when we think of the Charlotte shooting, uh, this 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 young, disturbed white man killing nine Christians in cold blood, I interviewed a number of the survivors on my radio program, The Eric Metaxas Show, which is also on YouTube, and they have forgiveness and they preach forgiveness. It, it is the most dramatic example of Christian faith that you've ever seen that these people who have every reason to be outraged, to, to, be, uh, to be furious with anger and, and wanting revenge are saying, no, 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 we're Christians, we're Christians. We don't see it that way. We pray for our enemies. We love our enemies. Uh, we don't condone what they did. We don't make light of it, but we are humble enough to know that we too are sinners. And so we preach forgiveness. It is so dramatic and stands in such contrast to, to the vile displays of, of revenge and criminality that we see happening right now that, that you have to know that if there is a God, I believe that there is. But, but even if you're not sure, you just look at the situation and you think, what are these people hoping to accomplish except you know, getting out of their parents' basement acting out their fantasies of, of smashing plate glass window, maybe stealing some things, being a hero among their friends. But they, they, they have no great goals. They have no great vision. Uh, they, they are failures. They're society's failures. 
and uh, our leaders uh, are enabling them, uh, and it will be to their eternal discredit. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a grotesque paroxysm in our culture right now. I think we'll get through it, but uh, it's it's fascinating to see it happening. The other, the best known quote in in this country anyway of those who have heard of Martin Luther King would be the one uh, uh, I think it was 1964, wasn't it? Uh, I, I dream of the day when my children are judged by the content of their character, not the colour of their skin. Right. Uh, he would surely look at the current situation and think, well, many of my people, many African-Americans, now feel judged again by the colour of their skin. Yeah. Despite the fact that, in fact, I mean, you know, Jimmy Crow, the whole Southern thing, it, it, it was, if you don't mind me saying so as an Australian about America, it was a disgrace. Uh, sure. And the civil rights movements achieved an enormous amount. Now, my understanding is, in fact, particularly under Trump in recent times, you'll never hear this in the media. It doesn't suit the narrative. But middle black Americans have made great progress, have been a lot of jobs and a, a dramatic improvement in the disparity in payments received by black, uh, black Americans. That's, that's the difference between saying that you're for the poor or saying you're for blacks and actually helping them. I think that the Democratic Party uh, they have had more than 50 years uh, of taking the black vote for granted, very cynically. And to say that they've done nothing for the blacks would be a generous understatement. They have destroyed communities with their policies. When you look at Baltimore, uh, when you look at uh, inner city Chicago, all around the country, uh, these places have been under the power of Democratic leadership. And the, the living conditions, the criminality, the lack of safety is unbelievable. And so I think that the Democratic establishment is scared to death that black people will vote for Donald Trump or certainly will at least stay home and not vote uh, for Joe Biden, who uh, his comment about, you know, if you, if you have trouble figuring out who to vote for, you ain't black. You know, that level of condescension has always been there, but nobody's been, uh, you know, d dumb enough to say it. He said it. And I think that there are a lot of people thinking, I'm not doing so well. Uh, before this pandemic, you know, uh, I, I got a job under this Trump economy. I really think that the, Dem the Democrats in in large part because of their fear that their number is up, finally, they are doing things that are much worse and more dramatic than anything they've ever resorted to before. I think that the, the, the Mueller investigation, the Russia hoax, I mean, can you imagine years from now, we're going to look back at this Russia thing and we're simply going to laugh that did, did that really happen? I mean, it's like the Salem witch trials. It makes the McCarthy communist stuff look like, you know, it made sense. It is a, a level of madness, but they've been willing to do almost anything and they've had enough power that they've been able to get away with it. Maybe not ultimately, but they've been able to, to, to pull it off, to impeach the president and on and on. And on. I, I think that there's a level of desperation which reveals uh, that they, they know that their, that their days are numbered. Uh, and I think that's as it should be. I think the American voters will do the right thing. Well, Thank you. It's a, it's a different view of America to the one that we're getting through our media at the moment that you've given us today. 
Uh, I think Australians do feel a great affinity with America and are at a time when, look, we've really had, uh, used the term earlier, the scab of complacency pulled off in Australia. Uh, we've managed uh, COVID-19 quite well. Our deaths per 100 have been about four or five compared to Europe at around 600 per million. America, uh, you would think, because of the way the New York scene's been played up, uh, was the worst place in the world, but in fact has managed it much better than Europe. Uh, your deaths yeah. per million have been about half, I think, maybe a little over half yeah. what Europe's seen. Uh, so it is a different story, Eric, but um, it, it would certainly be my, my hope and my prayer that America can rise above this division it is the world's sort of beacon for, for freedom and for hope uh, and for some degree of justice globally. We need to recover that because democracy, frankly, has been in retreat around the world. Well, you know, John, I think uh, I feel very strongly that the truth will win in this in this situation. I think that, again, the media, uh, that the the Democratic leftist establishment they know that uh, they've had their season and uh, finally people have seen through them and they, they are, uh, they're acting out very, very dramatically. But I think these are, these are death throes ultimately. There's a battle, it's a fierce battle, but it's a battle worth fighting. How many people have died for freedom um, over, over the centuries, over the decades? I, I think it's a battle worth fighting. There are many, many people around the world who see these things. Maybe they don't they don't talk about it or if somebody calls them up, says who you're voting for. They don't they don't say anything. But people see what is happening. Uh, and I, I really do believe that, um, you know, there are there are great things ahead. I don't say that lightly. We're going through a very tough time right now, but I'm absolutely convinced that God has his hand uh, on the free countries of the West and once uh, historically has created them to spread that freedom to the whole world. So I, I really don't think uh, we're about you know, to go down for the count by any means. I, I have great hope and every day on my radio program I interview fascinating people who, who talk about these things because I do think we need to talk about them. And so I'm, I'm so grateful to you for letting me mouth off on your a uh, wonderful program for for as long as an hour, but I I I just want you to know that it means a lot to me that you give me the opportunity because these are these are very tough times and these are important things to talk about. Well, Eric, again, thank you very much. Uh, you mentioned that we can get onto your radio program via YouTube, so uh, uh, that's uh, a plug for that. And can I just say uh, again, I love your books, and and the one of the things I the clear and crisp writing is terrific but you've got a tremendous sense of humour. It comes through brilliantly. So those books are great reading for anyone who's watching. That, mean, that means a lot to me. I think that's very important on my radio program as well. I think that uh, we, we ought to have fun. Uh, you know, uh, as a Christian, I say, you know, look, I've, I've read the book uh, and things turn out in the end. God wins. Uh, and we need to know that when we're going through it. And we've been going through it. But we need to, we need to celebrate in the midst of the battle. So th thanks for appreciating that and for your, for your kind words. It means a lot to me that you'd appreciate my books. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.